Evan and I are taking a short break this week from recording, but in true Wilshire Wednesday fashion, we wanted to pull one of the most played and requested episodes from season one out of the archives. In the rise of patient access, Tim Holland introduced us to Nate Hams, current president Stephanie Benintendi, and vice president Philip Quick. Hope you enjoy. Good morning, Daniel. How's it going? Hi, good morning, Evan. I'm doing well. Uh, How about yourself? I'm doing okay. It's cold here in Portland. I think it's going to be like a high of maybe 75, but it's 55 outside and 54 in my house right now. So. I had the furnace guy come by this morning. Our heat was out. So uh, also cold here in Pennsylvania. Glad to get that fixed. You got that and then the wedding coming up. You you are just having to burn all, <laughs> all fires. Yeah, I all guess right. for... Everyone listening, I get married this weekend, so uh, exciting week ahead. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we are back for our second uh, front end or patient access conversation for a podcast. So um, I think it is a good time um, to introduce a couple new people, maybe, that are sitting here on the video for our video watchers uh, chuckling along with us. I can start us out then with introducing our first guest. Um, always excited to talk patient access, and uh, we got a great crew of folks here today. Uh, so for our first guest, though, uh, is the current president of the National Association of Healthcare Access Management, or NAHAM, in case you've heard NAHAM and not the actual spelling out of the word. Um, and then along with uh, NAHAM, uh, the day-to-day job is the director of operations at Children's Hospital Colorado. And then with more than 25 years in patient access operations, uh, she led the Children's Financial Counseling Department to become the second hospital in the state, become a presumptive eligibility site for Medicare or Medicaid and CHP Plus, uh, which ultimately reduced application processing from 180 days plus to 30 days. Uh, we'll talk through some other examples here in the call today, but I am uh, just really honored to have you here, Stephanie Benintendi. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here today. Pleasure uh, working with you guys today. Thank you. All right. Well, I get to introduce our second of three guests today uh, with 20 years of progressive leadership in the access services and ambulatory patient care. Um, They are the current vice president of NAHAM. Um, They're also serving on the faculty um, in the Department of Health System Management at Rush University College of uh, School of um, Health and Science. Um, they have operational oversight of um, access centers, uh, including analytic capacity management, um, ancillary scheduling, referral department, pre-registration, and the list goes on. And it is an honor to welcome um, the vice president um, of access operations from the University Medical Center um, uh, or Russia's University Medical Center. Welcome, Philip Quick. Thanks, Evan. Great to be here with you. Super excited to uh, be part of this amazing podcast. All righty. And then I guess last but not least, Daniel, should we tag team this one? Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, So our third guest, uh, you know, Wilshire favorite, uh, has been here for, we've been working in the industry for 16 years in the revenue cycle and access management. I've been a key operational leader for more than eight EMR conversions, which is more than me, and uh, has served uh, as the regional director of admission services, where they 
uh, won the three-time uh, HFMA MAP Award, uh, winning for multi-specialty health systems in East Texas. Uh, Evan, I'll pass it back to you. Yeah, they're also a former director of NAHAM, a board of the directors. They are our current director of people and culture here at Wilshire. So welcome, Tim Holland. Thank you both. Happy to be here. All right. Uh, so Stephanie, Philip, and Tim, um, we're going to start out just a little bit of background about patient access as part of this series of podcasts on the patient access experience and journey. Uh, we're trying to encourage our listeners to think about where patient access was uh, and where it's going towards and what that uh, has morphed alongside the change in healthcare. So um, look to you all for your experience, your background, and where you think the industry is headed. Um, maybe, Stephanie, we can start with you just to give us a little bit of background on where you, uh, what, what comes to mind when we talk about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I think back to when patient access was, uh, when I started, it really was all about data entry and we were considered data entry clerks. And our job was to basically translate anything from a piece of paper into the computer system, whatever it was at that time. Um, we've certainly see that shift over time where we, we became a little bit more sophisticated. We got more technology. We started moving more into EMRs um, and we had more of a, a health data record set as opposed to just independent pieces of paper that were collected for a medical record. We shifted more into pre-registration and making sure families were were scheduled and pre-registered ahead of time, but it was all manual. It was a phone call. It was phone tag back and forth trying to get all that information. Um, after that, we saw a little bit more movement into now let's make sure everything is authorized. We always assumed that the physicians were doing it. And as we started to get more sophisticated in our data analytics and realizing that maybe those authorizations weren't necessarily particular to the service that they were having at our hospital, we had to get um, a little bit more sophisticated as well. We then saw more and more centralization over time. We started to see that, you know, you might still have multiple check-in locations and instead of them reporting to the lab and radiology and um, the cardiodiagnostic center, they're starting to now centralize and come together to be more unified under patient access. And as part of that, then you started to see more of that consolidation um, of those functions. So whether it was scheduling or check-in or reg, um, all of those different pieces started to kind of come into it, and we, we really started to evolve. Now we're getting into um, understanding the bigger scope of what really front-end patient access looked like. As we got closer into probably the, the, the mid-2000s, 2010-ish, we started to see a lot of movement in terms of technology um, with eligibility checking instead of having to make the phone calls or using the old, oh boy, I'm dating myself with some of this, but uh, we had the old, uh, look like an old credit card machine and you would manually type in somebody's um, user or their um, subscriber ID and a little ticket would would come up and tell you all their benefits and eligibility. Uh, we would use that for patient identity. So, but it was just these long strings of tickets that would come out and you'd have to staple it to your, your paperwork. And, um, you know, the microfiche for patient identity, if we were in downtime and, you know, all those things we have now shifted to where we now have a digital front door and patients are able to self-schedule. They're able to check themselves in either on a kiosk or maybe, um, their their own phone or a tablet. So I think seeing that shift even just in the past 25 years has really prepared us into the place where um, we now are uh, 
we're a force in the revenue cycle for, for front end patient access. We control the patient family experience. We control um, so many different aspects. And, you know, if we're going to get a denial on the back end, it just, I could talk probably an hour on that alone, but um, it's just, it's amazing to see how this has shifted over the past 25 years. Maybe I'll just add a little bit. Um, Stephanie gave a really great overview of all of the things that I would echo and and have seen over my last 20 years in, in access. And, you know, when I first started back in 2001, patients checking into the emergency room had these little um, credit cards that was their patient identifier. And we would uh, stamp them on sort of this uh, three-ply carbon copy paper that we would hold on file. And that that was our patient identification system. So we've we've come leaps and bounds over the last 20 years, uh, which is just incredible what technology has done. I think in addition to, to all of the technology, what has been really amazing to see is sort of the career ladder and the career progression over the last 20 years. And, you know, when, when I started, and, and I know Stephanie echoes this, you know, there, there, there wasn't these senior level positions, um, you know, it was unheard of to, to have a vice president of access. Um, there also wasn't a career ladder or, um, although NAHAM existed, the, the um, uh, rallying around professional development and certification wasn't what it what it is today. And so to see that progression and to um, be able to to partner and and during my intro, um, Evan, you mentioned I'm on uh, faculty uh, at our university and I co-teach practice management operations and and we plug in access and and uh, it's amazing to to see people be able to choose careers that are are lifelong and and can make this, um, and a dedication of their career um, for their professional life. It's, it's really amazing. The other thing that I, I think I'll, I'll uh, add to what Stephanie said is the change really in the last couple years in, in sort of our shift to ambulatory. And um, Stephanie and I live this um, every day in our, our day jobs um, at our employers, um, but we're really seeing this shift as you know, uh, value-based care has shifted and, and COVID has really pushed uh, a lot of care on the ambulatory side. We're, we're now seeing not only organizations catch up where nearly half, if not more of their revenue is on the ambulatory side from um, ambulatory day surgery um, and all of the professional um, charges and, and fees that go along with that. We're now seeing uh, the shift and sort of focus not only on, on patient experience and the digital front door, what Stephanie mentioned, um, but also the, the entire ambulatory access to care and how that is done and managed and moving all of those services upstream so that we can manage that patient um, uh, pre-service as much as possible. And just for my comments, just to kind of blend those two things together, you know, Stephanie, you talked about, you know, things transforming into a digital front door and then Philip talking about how the career ladder has kind of evolved over time. And that's been kind of a uh, necessity just because of the demands and the asks of, of registrars and, and anybody in the access realm um, today versus what it used to be maybe 15, 20 years ago. It really was a data entry job um, a long time ago, but now you're asked to, you know, you, you come in at an entry level job and you have to know the ins and outs of insurance. You have to know what an authorization is supposed to look like. You have to not only know how to generate an estimate, but then explain that estimate with good detail to the patient. 
Uh, and so it's the career ladder really has to be a necessity in order to kind of attract very intelligent, very qualified individuals to these types of roles. Um, but even your entry level jobs is no longer a minimum wage job. It's, it's more like a 15, 20, $25 an hour starting pay, which is very exciting in my opinion, just in terms of what, where the career is going to go. Yeah, and just to add to that too, Tim, I think the other um, part of that transition of having more of a um, a more educated, higher uh, higher educated person than what we used to have before is now we're starting to see the master's degrees, uh, the bachelor's, the master's. In some cases, some people even have the doctorate, um, and. You, you have to factor that in not only from an educational standpoint, but we're also asking them to actually be on the front line still and have that face-to-face -face interaction with patients and families to be able to, um, you know, create that experience, that inviting, welcoming um, encounter when they come into your hospital. So I think when you have to pair those two things together, um, that's what makes this very unique is you don't typically see um, front frontline and they're not frontline by any stretch of the imagination but because they are first first person the patient sees and interacts with they're still considered that frontline area um but the yeah the the expectations on them behind that are are ex just astronomical we didn't see we didn't see those levels of um of education and dedication and years of service that we've seen now and thinking about this maybe expanding into the future like five years i know we talk about patient access that's like a really wide umbrella and we're talking about career ladders do you see that there being a shift in what maybe the career ladder looks like in the next five years as far as like somebody in the world today or somebody entering today and what that that transition would look like or do you see it still being like a larger patient access umbrella that everybody sort of rolls up into um if i could jump in i think you're already starting to see it a little bit the digital front door is really just starting to, you know, get out and, and kind of evolve and become its own thing. So as patients start scheduling themselves more, doing their own registrations more, the, the last little remnants of data entry outside of maybe your emergency rooms kind of goes away. Now you're looking at more specialized type work where you are talking about interacting with more of an insurance company and knowing the ins and outs of what's required for an authorization or knowing how to generate that estimate and being able to explain that to a patient that quite frankly knows that they have insurance but may not realize what the benefits they have and, and how that plan interacts with the particular health system you're working for. Um, so yes, you, you're going to see that evolve even further um, to where the job descriptions start becoming a little more demanding. You're starting to look for more, more high-skilled individuals, um, which I think will only help the patient more. But from a patient access leadership perspective, it's going to be significantly harder, I think, to be able to recruit and retain individuals that already have that kind of a knowledge base. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. And, and I think what, what we'll see, and we're starting to do this at my own organization at Rush, is is uh, uh, adding in positions to be able to support that digital front door and um, the, the digital engagement uh, that we need to have with our patients. And there's sort of always going to be, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, you know, a need to have, you know, in-person um, uh, folks and, and people uh, answering the phone and scheduling them and pre-registering them. But as we, we shift more and more and more and put, even uh, uh, KPIs in place to increase that that interaction uh, digitally with our patients. We're now we're now seeing new roles, so it's sort of a, um, uh, a, a, an additional career ladder baked into access 
um, that are dedicated that um, to support that, whether it's, you know, um, a, a real live chat person. So if you're interacting with a bot and, and you have an escalation to um, someone in access that can um, help schedule you, help pre-register you, answer questions about insurance that that maybe the AI bot couldn't do, um, uh, or you know, from a, a program management standpoint, and and how does that that leader help um, position access um, at at the front door to make sure that we're accounting for all of those things that are part of patient access. So I'm going to throw you guys a curveball as you're talking about people changing and morphing and having, you know, going from frontline entry. Cause I mean, I can remember, you know, entering into healthcare, like your frontline entry was, you know, being a file clerk in medical records. If you're going the HIM route, or if you're going the billing route, you started off as the person moving the green bar reports and helping stuff envelopes and bills and things of that nature and working in the mailroom, that type of deal. And then, you know, really kind of that frontline patient access. But as we're starting to see a shift also in our environment, a true environmental like shift, you know, with Hurricane Ian and all these other areas. And we're also seeing a larger increase of behavioral health populations coming through our emergency departments or even just for appointments. Are you guys looking at how do you partner with, um, social work and things of that nature or giving those crisis management skills to your frontline staff members because they're really the ones when that patient walks in that has to de-escalate a situation if it's escalated right out of the gate right and what does that look like for your future as you guys are planning you know future growth and how you're giving your team members toolkits what what does that look like or what have you been doing given you know a pandemic pandemic and then monkeypox thrown on top of that and people freaking out over that and then hurricane ian coming through for a lot of areas that are being impacted you know just kind of trying to think what's that you know progressional that might not be going back to school for a career ladder of an actual degree or even a certification but even just that you know real-time toolkit yeah that's a good point evan um i think we've we've definitely seen um a lot of uh conversation coming around around wellness and resiliency and how do we equip our teams to be able to handle all of this um you know because in the middle of covid going on and all these other things there's so many other aspects that are still coming out we still saw legislation come out at least in state of colorado around it was the early version of no surprises act and it was the the state local um thing so we still had all these other pieces that we had to deal with in addition to trying to figure out how to work from home and how to do um you know just managing through the pandemic and what we've what we did actually this was before the pandemic and we started to put our teams through it um is it's called a um it's a de-escalation class from a workplace violence perspective and so um putting them through depending on their role, anywhere from four to eight hours worth of hands-on scenario-based training with um, our key, um, our, we have a resiliency and de uh, professional development department that put this stuff together and gave them real life scenarios that you've got somebody coming at you at the front, they're upset, their appointment was was rescheduled or canceled. Um, they're waiting, you know, four hours in the emergency room line those types of things. And so running them through those types of scenarios gives them some of those 
those pieces and tools to fall back on. So when something happens, they at least know how to react in the moment. And then after the fact, if it's something of significance, we have what we call is like a rest debrief. So we're able to bring them back. Let's talk about it. Let's break down what happened. Let's give you the tools so that you feel like you can learn from this and move on and not have to always second guess everything that you did. Did you do something wrong? Was there something that escalated this? And give them that free space to to grieve or to feel that it's okay that the way they reacted and you can only control your your own emotions and not how somebody else is handling it. So we've been running people through that. I think now that we're through the pandemic, um, we, it's time to re-up that because some of them you know, haven't been through it in two or three years now. Um, so we're starting to move um, more in that direction. And then from um, their support side, what I was going to say earlier is not only do our teams have to be that frontline person to understand the benefits and the eligibility and the estimates, um, but we are starting to take on more of that um, almost like a family navigator role in connecting people to resources in the community. Do we have food insecurities? Do we have other issues at home that are really preventing them from following up on their care? And so partnering with social work, partnering with our um, population health teams. And that's where I really start to see our roles start to shift is we'll start to continue to be the gatekeeper um, to, to identifying those families who need to be referred on for further resources. So I think putting all that together just continues to combine and escalate what the role of the patient access person is going to look like in the future. Agree. I agree with everything Stephanie said. And, and I think we've most organizations that I've interacted with, um, we've we've seen sort of um, programmatically those de-escalation strategies um, and and programs that are are now being um, access is being pulled into, which is is great because the access wasn't always pulled into. It was very much sort of a, a clinician focused or um, a tech focused initiative. So it's it's reassuring to see now that we're we're at the table. I think one of the the gaps that um, I'm seeing uh, is is really sort of the almost the phone de-escalation, right? Particularly in our our remote workforce, and you know uh, I have 168 schedulers that are completely remote, and how do we um, not only maintain their engagement from a, a remote workforce standpoint, but also give them tools and and strategies that we can teach them remotely to de-escalate calls and um, be able to, to help them navigate through. And, and you know, if you need to step away for five minutes from, from the phone, that's okay because tough calls are, are gonna happen. And you know, we shared this last week in, in another call with my own team that you know, patients post-pandemic are, are less patient. And, and I think we all are less patient and it's just sort of the, the world we live in. And, and so continuing to, to think about how do we replicate the, the strategies that we're putting in place from a wellness standpoint and a resiliency standpoint um, and replicating that from a pre-service standpoint, I think is going to be our, our, our next journey. Yeah. And just to add some other color of what we're hearing from, uh, you know, clients and from other people as well, we're hearing that they're starting to think about in behavioral health facilities and, and behavioral psychiatric emergency departments actually having some of their patient access staff be licensed um, social workers 
um, we're seeing in transfer centers, uh, the actual uh, case managers now having a full seat so that they can check for um, meeting inpatient criteria prior to a transfer coming in and being able to screen or say, you know what, let's triage them in the ED first instead of doing a direct-to-bed placement, those types of things and that partnership. So you are seeing those areas of access and that access management now really starting to embed clinical work for actual clinicians into their teams and into those throughput processes more so right out of the gate versus saying, hey, you know, we have this brand new college grad and they have no skill set yet. Let's just tell them to tell the patient to calm down. That's not going to work, right? So like really trying to get that. So I think um, it'll be interesting to see how it continues to evolve. Um, before we uh, continue the conversation, though, we do have to take a quick break. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. And we're back. All right. Uh, so we're moving on to our next section. Uh, we're going to call this NAHAM Rise and Shift Ambulatory. So thinking about uh, the outpatient space. In this section, or this segment, we're going to discuss industry trends, out-of-the-box ideas, and topics that get you thinking. All right. All right, um, guys. So I know you both are now dealing, as Philip mentioned in the first portion of the segment, you know, more of a shift to ambulatory culture where most people thought patient access was hospital focused only. So um, what does the shift look like and how is it kind of progressing? I think um, I'll kick us off here. I, I, I think it, it, it's multi-pronged. Um, I think that the, the biggest shift is sort of the, the structure um, and from a, a reporting structure and a leadership and a centralization of all of those access activities that, you know, we've worked on over the last, you know, 20 plus years on the hospital side and, and putting those structures in place so that we have the we're mirroring those processes, we're gaining the economies of scale and the efficiencies. And, and as um, I, I mentioned previously, as we see the revenue shift from inpatient to outpatient, that we are, are strategically putting those people and processes in place along with technology to minimize denials, maximize pre-authorization, ensure that um, all of our patients are, are fully verified and pre-registered at the time of, of, of scheduling. What I will also um, say, and, and this is sort of an anomaly that I've, I've seen occur in my own uh, last three years in, in the profession, is this also this huge shift in the patient experience and the emphasis on access to care and how patients are contacting your physician's office, how scheduling is working. And it, it's been this phenomenon at, at my own organization where the, the access questions on our Prescani ambulatory survey are, are now the heaviest weighted domain. They make up for 22% of the overall weight of the entire survey. More, they're weighted heavier than our, our questions that are asking about the nurse or even the care provider. So 
it, it just sort of goes to show that access has this profound impact, not only on, on revenue management and ensuring that we're, we're having those patients come in expeditiously um, and from a clean registration and um, so we can have a clean claim go out, but the experience that patients are, are now requiring, we have to be able to put our, our focus and resources um, on the ambulatory side because patients are just now expecting it. Yeah, to kind of add to that, I mean, it, it, to me, it's kind of sad that it's taken as long as it has to to start focusing on ambulatory in some ways. A lot of it, I think, is money driven and that, you know, you have this shift to ambulatory and because of that, because of a lot of the best practices and centralization and standardization that you've seen on the hospital side has generated so much success, they're needing, they're actually needing to replicate that now on the ambulatory side. Um, I think it's a great thing that's happening. I think it's the motivations all from the money side, but uh, you know, it, it is very much something that I think will benefit patients. It will benefit healthcare systems uh, in the long haul uh, to have KPIs like NAHAM use or like uh, organizations use with NAHAM access keys and things like that in the ambulatory realm, I think is going to be super beneficial uh, from an accuracy perspective, from a collections perspective in a lot of different ways. So I'm happy to see it happen. Uh, and I want to see it grow as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, historically hospital versus ambulatory has been high dollar versus high volume. And you're always going to put your effort where the high dollar is, which is the hospital based services. Uh, but now that we're starting to see more and more care transition over to more of an outpatient setting, you still have the high volume, but it's it's increasing the revenue um, and starting to see those in-clinic procedures, those um, you know downstream revenue impacts where that patient could be referred later on for, for surgery or an inpatient visit or um, you know maybe needing to come back to your emergency room or something like that. So I think that's where that some of that shift has happened. And as the um, as the industry has evolved over the past several years with that technology, you can now actually accomplish those same pre-service um, functions much easier because now you can, you know, if, if they're eligible and they're just here for an office visit, you don't have to do as much legwork in terms of an authorization or, um, you know, estimates are a different story now, but, you know, you don't have, you, you could pre pre-do all that stuff through the system and just let it kind of run its course and not have to have anybody physically touch it. So I think moving um, moving more and more of that ambulatory work into the revenue cycle is what started, where we started to see that shift. And now we just have to become more sophisticated because now uh, we have to put in the estimates, we have to put in more work around auths, um, but you know, we'll, we'll learn and we're getting there day by day. So it's good. It, are you seeing that, you know, historically ambulatory has reported up through clinics and, and that component? So how how is the blend or, you know, what advice do you have for our listeners and, and viewers on, you know, first kind of steps or actions to start to evaluate blending, you know, traditional patient access of an acute setting and the ambulatory setting so that they're really combined, especially if you're in, I mean, you're all on Epic and in that portion, but even other EMR systems, we we're seeing that integration and how that's, you know, forcing the change of coming into the same type of alignment, but how have you gone, actually gone about doing that, you know, out, outside of the theory? 
Yeah, I think that there's a there's a handful of different reporting structures um, out there, and I think I think the biggest um, uh, piece of it, whether you report to to Revenue Cycle up through um, your CFO, or in my case, I report to our COO. So I'm part of the operations team that oversees the um, all of the ambulatory clinic operations. Um, I, I think regardless of whatever reporting structure you have, it's the centralization effort, right? So, um, you know, taking all of the, the people who do that work, um, whether, you know, previously it was in the clinic, right? So you have people trying to schedule in the clinic, trying to do pre-registration, but not very well. Um, they may not have the ability to do insurance verification and, and um, they're not very good at collecting point of service collections or um, collecting a deposit and, and doing that work, you know, establishing those KPIs. But it's, it's really about taking the, the people and identifying who should be doing the work and where should it be done. Um, and, and really what I've seen is, is best success is that centralized um, uh, model because you gain those economies of scale, you gain the standardization. And I think it's re regardless of whatever reporting structure you have in place. Yeah, our clinics tend to have a lot in order to catch up is that they typically were their own little house, their own little umbrella, and that everybody within that particular clinic reported to the clinic manager. So you would have a different version of KPIs or metrics that were important to one manager versus another, and typically access would fall very far down that particular mm -hmm. total pole. Yeah. And that lack of standardization and quite frankly, lack of education in some sense, really hurts the clinics in terms of making sure you have a strong access process. So moving towards this centralized model in the, or a, a standardized model, at least in the ambulatory setting, really does depend a lot in terms of how you have the organizational structure set up and then also the training structure within those individuals. Yeah. And most of those ambulatory clinics were independent, right? So they were their own sort of independent company that um, now they've may have gotten acquired or merged and and you into a part of a much larger medical group and and that's really where you see sort of this culture shock and this pivot to be able to to standardize and and you know change management um, cannot be underscored enough in 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 those areas where um, you you have to partner with with not only the operational folks but those physicians and physician leaders have to be your partner as well um, um, through this centralization effort because if they're not if they're not your partner and they don't have a, a seat and voice at the table um, you'll have a hard time being successful just thinking about some of the tools I, I'm at a go live or was at a go live last week and we were having some of these issues like in the outpatients ambulatory spaces come up and we were looking at reporting tools for KPIs and everything was focused on the clinic managers to your point like it was very decentralized very hard to engage with everyone because there wasn't that centralized uh, approach to operations. Maybe to put a plug for Naham out there, where do you see Naham being able to partner with this effort of like centralization or uh, bringing everything together and partnering and educating folks on on that process? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Naham really has understood in the past few years that ambulatory um, is really an area that we need to spend a little bit more time on and make sure that we are really serving as that key subject matter expert um, within the patient access community. And so um, all of our different groups from the access keys um, to our 
um, education team, publications, everybody is really starting to take a look at whatever um, toolkits or the access keys, for example, that's in their wheelhouse and really starting to evaluate it from an ambulatory perspective. So again, we've always been hospital-based in a lot of our um, our material and really now taking a look at it. And if I have this metric for um, authorization rate or pre-registration rate, does the, the good, better, best number on that uh, access key really makes sense from an ambulatory perspective. And so each group is now starting to to go through those so that we'll be able to put out those revised metrics if they are, re- revised toolkits, um, those types of things to really start to get people to think a little bit differently um, about the ambulatory space. So we anticipate um, a lot of that work happening here in 2022 so that in the 2023 time space, we can uh, really start releasing that out to our members. I also oh, believe I can okay. sorry, I feel like we kind of started at the same time there. Uh, networking uh, within and amongst uh, other access leaders, the ability to do that with Nahum, the fact that Nahum puts on uh, an annual conference and also some of the smaller conferences uh, that you would have across you know different states and everything. We're not the only access leaders that have ever gone through an ambulatory centralization project of some kind that's happening all over the country. Uh, so being able to to connect and touch base with other access leaders across the organization, get different ideas and different approaches, that has always been one of the most valuable assets or, or arrows in my quiver, I should say, in terms of you know how I'm going to approach things at whatever organization I happen to be working for at that particular time. So uh, definitely a plug for the annual conference there. Uh, shameless plug at that, but it's it's definitely one of the most valuable things that Nahum does. Tim, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to to put uh, two plugs. One for the annual conference, which is uh, May 2nd through the 5th uh, in Orlando, Florida in 2023. Um, And we are looking for um, learning labs right now. So if any of our listeners out there have had success stories that they would um, be willing to share at our annual conference and and uh, put in front of others where other um, access leaders can learn and hear and ask questions and um, identify those best practices from an ambulatory standpoint. Um, I highly encourage um, you all to uh, submit a learning lab proposal, a proposal which you can find how to do so on our website. So thinking of uh, those shameless types of plugs, um, how has Nahum actually started to branch out outside of the traditional areas? I mean, I, I'll be honest, you know, I had a little bit of um, the front end in my operational career reporting up through me, but I didn't really know about Nahum. It wasn't until I had the pleasure of meeting Tim and meeting Patty and really getting to learn. I, I mean, I knew of it surfacely, but I didn't really know how it would benefit from me or, you know, benefit my team in comparison to HFMA or um, other major national healthcare associations out there that, you know, we are that also have awards and rankings and things of that nature. But kind of how do you see Nahum? you know, differing and benefiting, you know, the whole organization, not just the access front portion of the organization. Because I think that's what struggles, you know, people struggle with and the financial state that most hospitals and health systems are in right now is where do we put our buck for our team members? Um, and, and what's the difference? And, and how does that come back and benefit the full revenue cycle, not just their individuals? 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked, Evan, because, um, you know, NAHAM is really the only national association that supports the front-end patient access professional. Um, we focus not only on the revenue cycle and uh, everything that we've already talked about over the past, you know, half hour or so, but we also really focus in on everything that is um, coming into scope for a, a patient access leader. So that could be the operational components. You know, we all just went through COVID and there were numerous COVID webinars that we held over the past couple of years for people to come together, share their ideas, um, what's working, what's not working, how did they make the transition into that new, that new world. Um, we have disaster preparedness. So now with, um, um, Hurricane Ian that just came through the Florida area. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of work that you can do to be prepared as much as possible. And we have toolkits out there. We've had various webinars um, all the way back to when Katrina came through um, in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, and we, we there's always things evolving in, in the industry as well, right? So we, we recently saw um, and are still seeing um, a lot of work around diversity, health inclusion, health equity and inclusion. Um, we see a lot around um, identifying our patients correctly so that they feel valued, whether it's through the SOGI workflows or gender identity or um, just supporting the LGBTQ community. So I think there's so many different aspects. And if you go to even our education webinar page, you'll see hundreds of topics that have been covered over the years that help kind of guide you in some of those areas. And we're always nimble and flexible. So if the members say, hey, we're struggling with this, we need help, we're able to quickly pull together a group of people um, to to address it, whether it's through a webinar or a toolkit or whatever. Um, we have the NAHAM access keys, which Tim uh, mentioned earlier, which has been out there now for um, a number of years. We're on version four and actually getting close to releasing version five, hopefully with the ambulatory component to it. Um, but it's those KPIs that you want your leaders to really be familiar with and able to benchmark themselves, not only against themselves, but against their peers. And it gives you know a broad range between the good, better, best metrics. Um, we have connections and the collaboration opportunities through the Access Forum and our listservs. We have um, a quarterly um, Access Journal, the NAHAM Connections. We have a content hub. We have policies out there for you to use. So if you're not sure where to start, at least gives you um, a place and don't recreate the wheel if you don't have to. Um, and networking, uh, you know, Tim mentioned that as well. You get that through the annual conference. Um, many states have local affiliates that we like are trying to get back up and running again post-pandemic. Um, so you can start to connect with people um, in your local area and deal with whatever the challenges are that you have more locally as opposed to nationally. Um, so creating those connections and networks, um, honestly, is what got me where I am in my career today. Had I not had those connections and met Nancy Farrington at my first conference in 2004, I don't know that I would be here today. So there's just so much that you can learn um, from other people that have been there that understand it. And you really can talk um, true talk. You know, th this is your shop talk. These are the people who know exactly what you're going through. Um, we also have certification. So I don't know that everybody is aware, but we have two um, NCCA accredited um, uh, certifications, the CHA, which is for the Certified Healthcare Access Associate. Um, and then we also have the CHAM, which is for the manager. Um, and those those are, um, because they're accredited, they are very substantial. They're not just easy tests that you can get through. And it really shows that level of commitment, um, not only to the field, but to the profession and to you as a leader. Um, it, it always covers those changing topics, 
um, the different regulations, best practices. So you really get a sense um, of what, what patient access is like when you sit through one of those exams. Um, and then just to give one last plug, we are working on a number of things right now, but some of the big things are really going on um, are around um, our prior authorization. And NAHAM has actually taken a stand this past year in creating a white paper and trying to create um, some buzz in the industry and getting um, some payers to the table to talk about how do we reduce some of the administrative burden around authorization. We know it's never going to go away. And as much as we would like to really advocate on that side, we know there still has to be some um, checks and balances in the system. So we're advocating for how do we find ways to to partner together so that we can create what that new path is going to look like without waiting for somebody else to establish it on our behalf. Um, whether from a governmental perspective or, you know, other regulations that may come out. So um, they have created um, uh, the white paper. I would highly recommend checking out on the website. They did a phenomenal job. And Michelle Fox, who was our previous um, past president, and Becky Peters have really led this effort um, and have done tremendous work in, in getting these people to the table. Um, we're also recruiting and engaging the access professionals, as we talked about in our ambulatory setting. So that's another huge key strategic focus for us in the coming years. Um, and I mentioned the state affiliates. If you are in a state that does not have an affiliate or has an affiliate that is not yet re-engaged, please reach out to us. We have regional delegates um, that Philip helps oversee that uh, we would love to partner with you and help you get your state chapter back up and running. This is, like I said, that's the easiest place to get started at the local level. Um, it gets everybody together. And then from there, you start to gain the benefits at, at the national level as well. But get get those local affiliates up and running. Um, we would love to, to partner with you on that. Um, and then we talked about the various networking opportunities that are out there too. So um, when you when you think of all of that that I just rambled off, you know, in the past few minutes, the value that you get for that for even just our our member fee is significantly less than any of the other organizations. Um, you know, whether it's the um, AHAM, uh, HFMA, any of those other groups, our our fees are substantially lower, and you get top quality um, industry best practice type stuff. So it's if you want a return on your investment, this is where you go. This is where you can put in that tiny little bit of money per person uh, for the membership and the rewards are just tremendous. Stephanie, I got a cool little access key story for you. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it was mentioned in my bio when I was introduced that I come from an organization back in my operational days that was a three-time HFMA NAP award winner. Um, but when we started going through that particular process, this, I mean, for anybody that's gone through it, it's not an easy one. Um, and we started looking at the access metrics that you needed to get into there. We had already been practicing access key compliance and, and making sure we had those KPIs for a number of years. So when we started looking at the data and start doing the calculations, like HMA one, it was like, oh, come try to go. Here's your data. And it was, that, that was all it was. But the only reason we were like that was because of the access keys. So mm -hmm. yeah. uh, another shameless plug there, but that's, that's something that I was really proud of with my organization at the time. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think um, you'll see that our, our standards are a little bit different. Some of our definitions are different yeah. as well. Um, but I, I think we're really focused in on the actual um, pieces and parts that make up each of those access keys where I think HFMA has something that's, you know, yes, you need to have some of those front end metrics, but for them, that's not necessarily the driver of how mm -hmm. everything ends up where we're solely front end focused. So um, everything you see is, is what we do. Mm -hmm.
All right. Well, on that note, we need to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Fine Medical serves a growing base of more than 800 active hospitals and health systems nationwide. Their best practices are hardwired through technology solutions proven to help hospitals achieve sustainable top performance. Their well-published results include improving financial performance, physician and staff alignment, patient experience, compliance, and patient safety and quality measures. Learn more at vinemedical.com. That's V-Y-N-E medical.com. And we're back. Now it's time uh, for the Wilshire Lab. In each episode, we'll explore questions submitted by our listeners. This week, we have two questions raised by some listeners. All right, I get the first question. And for this week, we're going to chat about patient estimates. Uh, So for our three guests here, just uh, leverage your expertise and experience. We're have you seen your organizations or just other examples that you've heard around in the industry address aligning patient estimates for hospital and professional services, uh, specifically uh, for services you might not conduct? And then what should uh, we all consider when moving to Epic's patient estimates? If that's something that you've taken on. So I was just going to, and Tim, you may have, have more to share than um, I do. I think, um, you know, I, I've been a little bit spoiled in the last couple of years in, in the aspect of estimates and, and uh, what isn't accounted for. Because we, we um, I come from a, a very large academic medical center and um, our medical group is comprised of not only primary care and then all of the specialists and subspecialists, but also ED um, our radiologist, everybody's employed, uh, which is great from a, a standardization standpoint. And it also makes it um, super easy to be able to account um, and, and have that price transparency from a price estimation standpoint when we're um, attempting to provide um, that service for a patient pre-service. So we can account for the hospital-based services and I can account for um, the professional fees on all of those um, areas because all of those physicians are employed and we have their fee schedules. Where I was going to come in, I think this question alludes a little bit to the No Surprise Act and how this is going to kind of change the estimate world. Um, I, I would say, I mean, it already has, but definitely in the near future as well. Organizations are going to be required to start providing estimates or, or some type of information around what the independent surgeon coming into the organization is going to charge from his professional fees in addition to your surgical fees or or uh, organizations fees for, for having an inpatient stay. That's going to require a lot of um, cooperation with these independent surgeons. Uh, I've seen a number of organizations, my current client included, start working out this uh, these negotiations in, in types of contracts and ways to say, listen, if you want to continue performing here, because of NSA, we have to be able to have access to how you're charging, what your fees look like, uh, and if you refuse to give that to us, then we're not going to be able to allow you to perform surgeries here. Um, that's That particular approach is a little heavy-handed, but sometimes you do need that. What I've found is that my, my client in particular hasn't had to use that particular approach all too often. Most everybody's in pretty much agreement that this is, this is the future. This is what's going to have to happen. And they're working very cooperatively together about that. One other thing that I might add um, in addition to, you know, your surgeons and your other professionals, 
one thing that's typically overlooked is uh, organizations that might use uh, radiology reading groups um, that will that you'll contract out the read of an MRI or something like that. You'll have to also look at those those fees for those reading groups and make sure that's included on your estimate uh, as you go forward. So we always think about the surgeons and the and the independents that are coming in performing services, but we typically forget about the things on the other end, which is after the service has been performed in your organization. Who is going to read that MRI, and then how we're making sure that we're having that information presented to the patient before it's done as well. Yeah, Tim, that's a good point. You know, you've got your those ancillary providers, the radiologists, the pathologists, um, maybe your anesthesiologists in some areas if they're um, doing that, or a, even a cardiac surgeon if they're reading an echo after the fact. So, um, I think those are all good points. I think the other, um, I'm in a similar um, boat as Philip, we're an academic medical center as well. So um, although we're not a closed medical staff, it, it is for lack of a better term. Um, so we don't have a whole lot of external providers coming in that are not through our faculty school of medicine. Um, but the one thing we are doing even with them, which is a challenge because we are two different entities, is we still have to create some sort of a an uh, interface for them to be able to send their charges over to us. So we are actually working with Epic to create an ADT and an SIU message that will be coming back over. So we'll have access to those charges. Um, I think it'll be interesting because Epic doesn't always like to talk Epic to Epic for whatever reason. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this evolves over time um, with those with those providers. But um to the second part of the question um, about what they should consider when moving to Epic Estimates, um, our experience has been that you really have to decide when you're using a template versus historical data. And the amount of analysis that you need to do on the back end is, or really the front end before you get started is, is pretty heavy. Um, but once you start to kind of get a sense for what is uh, a more standard, like an MRI or a, an ultrasound or an X-ray, those are the things you can create um, something more of a template off of, and you're just always using that same um, thing. And then as your charges change, then that that updates with it. It's the historicals I think that get a little bit more challenging when you come into um, the therapy space or any type of a recurring series, um, because you know those can be so varied on how often a patient treatment plan is really determined. So you have to be very careful with those. We are still working through a lot of the bugs that we have in our therapy space um, because of those, those differences, whether it's a combination of OT and PT or a speech involved or, you know, where do all those different pieces land for that patient's particular treatment. Um, but I think the other thing to really focus in on is find those things that the system can auto-finalize on its own. So again, you don't have to touch it. You know it's good to go. Automate as much as possible so your team can really spend time focusing on those that need a little bit more of a critical eye and review of so you can finalize those that are that are going to be more correct and within that um, wiggle room of, of an error or accuracy rate. I think I just also would want to plug with you guys is, you know, it's not just patient access focused and it's not that it's full rev cycle. So you do have to bring in your clinical departments to get estimated timeframes of how long something takes. Your revenue integrity team should be doing a big lift for you of this to be able to go and do the pricing analysis and break that down and which fee schedule should be pulling from what for IT and things of that nature. Um, and also being able to say, hey, this is the average surgical timeline for this. And this is what we would say case rate things of that nature would be. So I think it's, it, this is a space that 
you really do have to partner across. Um, we see it really led by patient access because it's patient facing, but really in the background, you need to be making sure that your other key key leaders and team members are actually fully engaged in taking their portion of the ownership of it as well. Agreed. Highly collaborative. That also make sure that you have a very well-built and I would say healthy RTE uh, real-time eligibility for the non-ethic folks. Uh, so it, it just making sure that you are able to pull back the necessary benefit information from the insurance, uh, but also know where to strategically place that within the benefit collection screens because the estimate is really driven from those particular screens and those fields within those screens. So having that build down and then having a, I would say at least twice a year review of that build to make sure nothing has changed or, or their stuff has moved around from the data input perspective on the 270, 271. Um, that is extremely important when you get to the point of how you're trying to explain, not only explain the estimate to the patient, but make sure you're having accurate information go to the patient. Yeah. You know, the other thing I forgot is if you are not already scheduling off of an order, uh, you will have to make that transition. So another key change management feature, if you have not already put that workflow into place, you will have to do that with this to, to be successful. So um, because we are near out of time, actually, we are going to hold the next question um, and bring it back for a future episode. And maybe Philip and Stephanie will actually get your guys' take on it and be able to plug it into that episode as well. Um, but for everybody, um, that's it for the Wilshire Lab. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie, Philip, and Tim for joining us today. Uh, pleasure having you. And just so that our listeners can contact you with questions or if they want to connect on like a social media website, what's the best way to get in contact? Yeah. So there's um, a couple of different areas. So with Naham, um, we are available on Instagram at Naham DC. We're also on Twitter at my Naham. We are also on LinkedIn uh, as Naham headquarters. And we're on Facebook um, at National Association of Healthcare Access Management. And then there's the good old fashioned website of naham.org. And then for me personally, um, you can connect with me either on email, which is stephanie.benintendi at childrenscolorado.org, or I'm also on LinkedIn. Same. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, uh, there's only a few Philip Quicks out there. So um, I'm, I'm the, the access guy. If a few of us come up on LinkedIn, uh, message me, connect with me there. Um, also, you can connect with me directly via email, uh, which is philip underscore n uh, as a Nicholas underscore quick at rush.edu. Yep. And then I'm on uh, the Wilshire Group website, the Wilshire, or the Wilshire Group.net. Uh, and then my email is t.holland at the Wilshire group.net and I'm more than happy to connect. All right. Well, Daniel and team, I think that's it for us today. Bye-bye. 
If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.